Hello, good morning. It is Eric Erickson here. How are you? I hope your targets are, you know, maybe it, maybe now is a good time to rethink naming the store target. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Oh, gallows humor this morning. The full number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, obviously, you know, we've got the, the riotous situation around the country uh tumult uh the the president not yet feeling the need to address the nation uh they're they're thinking of it i've i've got some thoughts on that uh we we need to probably deal with that let, let me give you the background of what has happened though around the country there have been a series of riots obviously around the country uh hijacked if you will the uh, George Floyd death. There were peaceful protests in the black community uh, to demand justice for George Floyd. They started on Friday and Tifa and others uh, infiltrated those riots and uh, led them to become violent. And what I find remarkable are the number of members of the media who leapt immediately to the idea that this is somehow uh, white supremacist Trump supporters who were actually doing the rioting. It, it, it was nothing of the like, and yet they couldn't help themselves making that claim because they can't bring themselves to acknowledge that Antifa might actually be to blame. They they did not want to do that. We're also seeing intelligence uh, operatives around the world taking advantage of the situation, trying in some ways to uh, infiltrate and use online systems to pass dis disinformation and and magnify the disruption that's happening in the country. Here's Robert O'Brien, the uh, national security advisor to the president. Okay, and what can you tell us about uh, any of the far right groups that might be trying to use this uh, as a, a predicate to, to prompt a, a race war, as Vice News uh, reported, uh, that they, they are also part of some of the unrest, some of the violence we're seeing. And then, of course, Senator Rubio saying uh, that foreign adversaries uh, through social media are trying to stoke violence as well. Well, I, I, I have not seen those reports, uh, and I haven't read. I, I generally don't read Vice, uh, so I haven't seen the reports on far right groups. This is being driven by Antifa, uh, and they did it in Seattle. They've done it in Portland. They've done it in Berkeley. Uh, this is a destructive force of of radical. I don't even know if we want to call them leftists, whatever they are. They're 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 militants who are who are coming in and burning our cities, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And a little more. Okay, and what can you tell us about any of the far right this groups the, that might be further to use this expansion uh, of the conversation? As a, a predicate to, to prompt a, a race war, as Vice News uh, reported, uh, that they they are also part of some of the unrest, some of the violence we're seeing. And then, of course, Senator Rubio saying uh, that foreign adversaries uh, through social media are trying to stoke violence as well. Well, I, I, I have not seen those reports, uh, and I haven't read. I, I generally don't read Vice. Uh, so I haven't seen the Good reports on far right groups. This is being driven by Antifa, uh, and they did it in Seattle. They've done it in Portland. They've done it in Berkeley. Uh, this is a destructive force of of radical. I don't even know if we want to call them leftists, whatever they are. They're 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 militants who are who are coming in and burning our cities, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And as far as our foreign adversaries, look, we always have foreign adversaries who are on Twitter and Facebook and other places trying to dis sow discord among Americans, and. Uh, you know, the difference between us and our foreign adversaries, and I want to send a message to the Chinese or, or whoever else are taking satisfaction of this, 
you know, when we have a, an event uh, like like happened to, to George Floyd, which was just horrifying, and, and, and again, our hearts go out to his family, we mourn and grieve with him, we're going to investigate it. We're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to prosecute him. We're going to get to the bottom of what those other officers who were standing around while, while George Floyd was killed, what they were doing, and, and if necessary, they'll be prosecuted. And we're going to follow that very closely. That's the difference between us and our foreign adversaries. When this happens in America, uh, th those, those uh, bad apples who give all of our law enforcement, who are great Americans, a bad name, they're going to be prosecuted. We're going to allow people to protest, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And that's the difference between us and, and between the authoritarian countries around the world. He makes a good point there. Uh, China apparently is trying to stir stuff up online. Be, be careful what you read online. It, it was really galling to me to see the Democrats, uh, it, particularly all, uh, the the activists in the news, rush out to say, oh, this is all Trump supporters doing this, which was nonsense and, and completely, completely unsubstantiated. And yet they ran with it because they can't bring themselves to acknowledge precious Antifa might be behind this. Now, I, I realize, I realize uh, that there are some of you who believe Antifa means anti-fascist and therefore they're just against fascism. Actually, Antifa was started by communists uh, to go against the Nazis. The, the Nazis and the communists are kissing cousins. And uh, the fascists and the anti-fascists are kissing cousins. They use largely the same tactics. Antifa is a violent group in the same way the European fascists were. Uh, to say that it is somehow a peaceful organization against fascism is is part of the propaganda. That's not true. It is a violent uh, left-wing group. And you can see it uh, across the country. But I, I want to spend a, a few moments, if you'll, well, you have to allow, because it's my show, talking about this. I thought it was notable over the weekend that it was overwhelmingly progressive white 20-somethings doing the damage. It was these progressive 20-something uh, skinny jean-clad hipsters with their Antifa face masks on uh, who hijacked the peaceful protests of black Americans seeking justice and instead led marauding gangs around to vandalize, pillage, and destroy. Uh, that should probably tell us all something about race and justice in the United States right now. There were certainly uh, black Americans engaged in the destruction. You saw the pictures of, of people, uh, black and white, pulling TVs out. I, I saw one, one, one poor little white dude pulling Legos out of a Target. But in city after city after city, it was mostly young white people, mostly young white men who picked up the first bricks and lit the first fires. Now, I, I just meditate on this with me for just a minute, if you will. Think about this. It, it was not the initial aggressors, like, for example, in Atlanta. Uh, what began to trigger the event in Atlanta on Friday night, I was up in Atlanta. I was coming home. Uh, ironically, I don't know if you know where the Cory Tower is in the Grady Curb in downtown Atlanta, the big white tower that's down there near the state capitol. My face was on it. I'd gone over to Cory Enterprises for lunch, and they had put up a picture of me and and, and my show. And so I was uh, my face was staring down at the rioters as they stormed the interstate on Friday night. But it, the initial prompt was uh, the bicycle police there. Uh, some white guy tried to yank a, a bike away from one of the bike police officers, and that started the trouble, and it escalated from there. But think about this for a minute. Uh, these weren't white supremacists. Uh, they, they were. They were mostly the black-clad thugs of Antifa and, and a bunch of teen and 20-somethings who've been cooped up for a couple of months and no longer have jobs, uh, idle hands with time on their hands. Uh, they decided to go out and, and do this. Uh, so let's not deny that there were uh, black people involved in the destruction. You've seen the pictures. But 
I think it's also notable that these young hipster white kids are far less likely to face any consequence than the young black people who are engaged in rioting and violence. And, and that's kind of the problem we're dealing with. You remember Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri? Michael Brown uh, stole stuff from a convenience store. He then charged and, and assaulted a cop. Uh, the police officer ultimately had to shoot him, justifiably so, for what he did. We'll compare him with Dylan Roof, who went into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed a bunch of people, shot the place up. And then the police bought him Burger King afterwards. Did you know that? He was hungry. They bought him Burger King. They didn't shoot and kill him. I was listening to Leonce Krupp, who's a uh, reform pastor in Atlanta, went to Reform Theological Seminary. Great guy, well-spoken. And he pointed out, you know, it, it's not that it's not that, that uh, these young black men got killed by the police uh, when they were charging or trying to assault the police. It's that for every one of those, you can find one where a, a white guy did the same thing and they let him away in handcuffs. There are plenty of, of white people who are killed by police every year due to police brutality. There are, but also black, and maybe we do have a problem with police. I, I, I saw a, and by the way, this is not to paint a broad brush with the police. I saw someone over the weekend say, you know, um, we always say a few bad apples um, spoil the bunch when it comes to the police. We would never say that about brain surgeons or, or doctors in general or uh, pilots. Uh, we, we don't want a few bad apples in those professions. Why do we allow them into the police? Part of the problem we deal with is this notion of white privilege, which I I am opposed to the whole idea. Uh, It is a a social construct from the left, and they use it a lot. Uh, And I got to tell you, I I don't feel very privileged. I'm still paying off loans from law school. I I funded my entire law, law school ride with student loans. I'm still paying them off. I don't even practice law anymore. I busted my butt to get where I am. I certainly don't feel privileged. That's not privilege. It's hard work. It's sweat equity. I find the entire idea of white privilege, what you're trying to tell me is that an entire class of people, you don't want to be judged as a class of people, but you want to judge a class of people. You want to say all white people are somehow culpable. Man, I, I've seen friends of mine who are white in the last few days saying, I, I guess I am partly responsible. I, I, I guess I, I guess I am to, to blame. I, I, I've played some role in this. You haven't played a role in this. There's no, this whole white privilege idea, it is designed to make you feel guilty for something that is not your fault. If we are a society composed of individuals, then we should all be treated as individuals. Everybody's story is unique. The poor white kid in Appalachia, depending on a, a government van to come by today and give him lunch, does not have white privilege. And when he elevates himself out of Appalachia by getting an education in a crumbling school in spite of the school system and goes off to college and becomes a lawyer, he, he, there's no white privilege there. If we're not to judge anybody by their skin, then we're not to judge anybody by their skin. So I, I just, I, I vehemently reject the idea of white privilege, but we can't reject reality. And the reality is that both white and black people are abused by police on occasion, but few white parents ever have to actually talk to their kids about the police. 
I, you know, when, when white parents give their kids the talk, the talk is about uh, how not to make their white parents grandparents before they're ready. When black parents give the talk to their kids, uh, the talk is how not to get shot by the police uh, so that maybe they'll live long enough to give their parents kids. And that is a reality. We, we can't deny that reality. I, I, I can't tell you the extraordinary conversations I, I have had with friends of mine in, in the black community who say this, who tell me that they got to talk to their kids about what to do with an encounter with, with police. So there's, there's no white privilege. Um, I, I'm not going to be guilted into going along with left-wing values. I'm not going to be guilted into going along with reparations or some such. And by the way, you notice it's always white liberals. Uh, I'm sure the woman in New York uh, who, who wanted to call the cops and say a black man was harassing her, I bet she was in favor of reparations. A, a bunch of white liberals want to throw money at the problem and walk away. Next time police brutality happens, well, we gave you money. The reality is we got a problem. Racism is a sin. We are all sinners. There is a problem with some sinners, uh, and that problem is racism. And those people are involved in government, uh, and they're involved in society. And that is the reality. Whether it's George Floyd or Ahmed Arbery, uh, we still fall short, but we don't need red pills. We don't need blue pills. Frankly, we, we don't need pills. We need Jesus. Red or blue, we just need Jesus. It's It's... I, I'm frustrated because it, it would be great if the president could address the nation, but what good could he do? He he is divisive. He likes to fight, and, and there will be people. You'll have the Don Lemons of the world. If the president were to say anything nice, would melt down and come unhinged because the president dared to offer an olive branch. How dare you offer the olive branch unless you give me the litany of all the things that I've wanted all along that you haven't given me? So the president can't address the nation. The media is dividing the nation. I mean, hell, the media is out there saying it was white supremacists doing this when, when it was Antifa out there writing Antifa symbols and, and spray painting hammers and sickles on things. But we do need to stop throwing up excuses and, and we do need to recognize that there are problems. You know, black churches and white churches, they all worship the same God from the same Bible, but they emphasize different syllables of faith. Uh, black churches are way more likely to focus on the Exodus. Black Americans, white Americans, we all say the same Pledge of Allegiance, but we put the emphasis on different parts of our shared story as a nation. And frankly, we do need to acknowledge that the United States has been far less kind to the story of black America than white America. And a government and a society has turned a blind eye to solutions. But here's the problem. A society where a white kid can pick up a brick and smash the window at a target and, and face less repercussions than a black kid is a society that's not going to come up with a solution to the problem. So many of the proposed solutions from the left are just the government rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic or throwing money at the problem. So, they, I mean, that, that's white liberals love to throw money at problems and never deal with them again. Frankly, the solution here, everybody wants a solution. The solution's going to come from you and from me. It's going to come from you loving your neighbor. It's going to come from you teaching your kids to understand that different Americans have different experiences and we should judge that person by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. You know, there's this big movement after Ahmed Aubrey that, that we're never going to have a colorblind society. What we, we need to do is, is to come to terms with this. Ah, no. Jesus says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free. I, I think we're supposed to have a society where we don't see our differences. We see each other as, as, as a shared people. 
But that's the thing here. You're going to start hearing a whole bunch of people saying we need government solutions to this. Government's got to do something. There are some things the government can do, and we can talk about those, but there really aren't a lot of things the government can do here because essentially the government that runs the law enforcement that killed George Floyd is the government you want a solution from. You're not going to get solutions from those people. And by the way, I think we should resist the blame game. We should resist the idea that we're culpable because we're white, we're, we're privileged in some way. We need to recognize the reality of what goes on in this country, that, that black Americans, by and large, do tend to have worse encounters with law enforcement and, and worse outcomes overall. We do need to recognize that. What can we as individuals do to improve that situation? Uh, but we can resist the whole blame game, white privilege stuff, acknowledge the reality of, of unfairness, and also recognize Government's not going to provide a solution to this. We've had a bunch of well-meaning liberals in the government bureaucracy for decades, and the situation isn't getting any better. It's going to require you around the table with your kids discussing this, not government trying to find a solution. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program and discuss this, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I really, this weekend, seeing all this stuff happening, Spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I wanted to discuss this. I, I hear the phrase white privilege more and more these days, and it, it just it, it really rubs me the wrong way. And I, I understand what people mean by the term that uh, somehow I, as a white American, uh, have typically have access to means and resources that, that people who are not white don't have. I, I get that. But you're essentially telling me you want to be judged individually for who you are and yet you're going to put me in a class of people and judge me not as an individual but but as a group of people that you group you you have had some sort of advantage therefore you must now give up uh and, and give something else i i don't think that's helpful for anyone if you want to be judged as an individual judge me as an individual but I do think it is incumbent on everyone to concede and acknowledge that, uh, yeah, there there are problems. There, there's no reason to dance around the fact that uh, the odds are that were George, George Floyd white, the situation would have been different. Who was the, the guy, Orlando Castile, who was, was shot dead by the police uh, up north somewhere? Um, if he were white, it probably would be different. And that's not to say white people aren't, aren't ever abused by the police, that there are ample examples, uh, but there's no need to engage in whataboutism here to just acknowledge a truth of the matter. And that truth is that, uh, oftentimes when it comes to government, uh, if you're black, you're treated differently. And, and I, I, I hear people say on the right, and I used to be in this camp of, well, look at the collapse of, of black families and the rise of crime and drugs and gangs. And, and so, of course, the police are going to uh, treat the black community differently. But again, I, I want to be treated as an individual. And if I want to be treated as an individual, I, I think I owe it to others to treat them as individuals and, and not a, of a group, to not judge people by the color of their skin, but to judge them uh, by the content of their character individually. And I don't think we're going to find a government solution to this. I just don't. Um, there, there are some things the government can do. When we come back, I'll, I'll talk about that and, and what I think the president probably ought to do. I think the president, oddly enough, is an interesting person to be able to take this on. 
and, and I want to tell you, it may, maybe I need to, he, he, I will give you my suggestions. I haven't called the White House, haven't talked to the president, and, but I'll give you my suggestions for what the president should do. But there is one thing, Justin Amish uh, from Michigan is proposing one of the major reforms that uh, could actually happen to help some of the problem. But there's something the president, I think, can do, and we'll discuss that here when we get back. We'll take your phone calls as well. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the qualified immunity issue and uh, what's going on here. This is a, a thing Justin Amish from Michigan wants to change. Qualified immunity is, it's essentially a court doctrine uh, that, that the courts have put in place that unless uh, there is a, um, a a clear precedent uh, in violation of civil rights by a police officer, the police are presumed not to have violated your civil rights. In other words, uh, if a police officer does something that is determined to be wrong, but no one has ever done this thing before, then uh, the police officer can't be sued. He's got qualified immunity. Uh, now, the next police officer who does the same bad thing uh, can be sued because the prior police officer's case determined that it was bad. But if there's no precedent for it being bad, then you, you're, you've got immunity from your lawsuit. And the courts have applied this o over the years in a variety of cases to protect uh, government ministers and, and bureaucrats from being sued for their conduct. And Justin Amish wants to get rid of it. And frankly, if he did, it could potentially help the situation uh, because, uh, listen, there, there shouldn't be a judicially imposed protection for government bureaucrats of any kind. And I don't mean bureaucrat disparagingly, just people who work in the bureaucracy of the government, whether law enforcement or otherwise, there shouldn't be all of these protections for them. If they screw up, they should be judged on their behavior uh, and not on whether or not someone before them has done something bad so that they should know as well that they shouldn't do it. It allows governments to abdicate uh, good decisions and teaching good behavior to their employees in favor of, well, okay, here's how Bob screwed up, so none of the rest of you screw up the way Bob did, or now you'll get sued. It would be a step in the right direction. And, and, and I got to tell you, um, one of the things I think the president probably needs to do is address the nation. And there are a lot of people saying, the president can't address the nation. I think this president can address the nation. I would like to offer my prepared remarks. If I were president of the United States, if I were Donald Trump, here's what I would do. I, I would get on television and I would offer up this address to the nation. My fellow Americans, as you know, for four years, the federal government elite have been out to get me. They have drummed up all sorts of charges against me all of them proven wrong by federal investigators. They have rounded up good men like Mike Flynn and thrown them in jail. 
uh, demanding that he take pleas because of the weight of government against him that he couldn't fight. He they, they forced him to choose between himself and protecting his son, and he chose to protect his son, and he pled guilty, and now he's fighting it. And now even a federal judge is, is aligned against the Justice Department wanting to drop that charge. The federal judge won't allow them to do it despite all the evidence that he was railroaded. So I get injustice, and I get injustice at the hands of the system. And so I understand why people are mad. I've been treated unfairly by the government as well. And I want to make it right. When I got elected, we moved on criminal justice reform. Some people, a former senator from Delaware, said we needed tough laws. We needed to round up people even for jaywalking. They needed to go to jail. And lots of black men in this country were thrown behind bars, breaking up families, robbing young men of fathers. And I worked to make that right. I passed criminal justice reform. I helped get these black men out of jail and restore their lives and get them back to their families. I did that, but we need to do more. One of the things we need to do is we need to get rid of qualified immunity so that I can sue the government for abuse, so that Mike Flynn can sue the government for abuse, and so you can sue the government for abuse. The elites have propped themselves up, hiding behind jurists and judges and we need to make this change. Congress needs to get involved and get rid of qualified immunity. If I could do it myself, I would, but I'm not a dictator. I've got to rely on Congress, and Congress needs to do this. We should have change in this society because that should never have happened to George Floyd. But people have hijacked these protests, and the people who have hijacked these protests need to be punished. I'm going to ask Congress to take away the unemployment benefits of any person who is found guilty or pleads guilty to participating in the riots and the destruction of property. It has been remarkable to see the videos of young white people hijacking the peaceful protests of black America demanding justice. And we should be appalled at that. We should also be opposed and appalled at All of these people having idle hands and idle time because they've been forced to stay home for the last several months. And if they can get outside and protest together, they can go back to work. It's time to reopen America. It's time to bring back sports. It's time to bring back jobs. It's time to bring back our economic strength. It is time to make good on the legacy of George Floyd and heal this nation. Thank you for your attention and God bless America. If I was president, I would do something like that. I think he's he is the perfect person. Listen, he's the guy who signed criminal justice reform. He's the guy who opened the prison doors to a lot of people who have been thrown in jail for minor drug charges for a very long time. And Joe Biden's the one who put him behind bars. The president has a unique opportunity here. Now, there will be people, you'll know, you'll see the Don Lemons and the Brian Stettlers of the world in complete meltdown about this president doing something like that. They will go full on for Joe Biden on this. But I think the president has a unique opportunity to do something cool here. I mean, he he can go on and he can completely turn this on its head politically because he signed criminal justice reform. And the president can talk about how he has been the victim of an out-of-control government state investigating him and his friends and ruining lives and forcing people like Flynn to choose between uh, his life or the life of his son. He's got a story to tell. Now, you can disagree with it. Feel free to disagree with this. I'm totally pulling this out of thin air here. The president thus far has not want to do this, but I, I think this is the message he could deliver and deliver it credibly. 
You know, one of the worries in the White House is that uh, this president, when he gives statements, when he gives prepared statements, when he reads off the teleprompter, uh, 15 minutes after the teleprompter goes off, the president starts winging again, and half the time, uh, his statements contradict the statements that he gave in, in the speech. In this, I think you could get in the president's head and get him to focus on this as injustice. You could get him to focus on qualified immunity. You could get him to focus on, we need to get rid of this. You can get him to focus on the, these, these white hipster millennial progressives are, are co-opting the peaceful protests of black America. You could get the president to do this and he could potentially stay on message and help himself. Here, here, here's the thing here. We need to get into the real world implications of this. And, and I would not believe a single pundit who came out today and said, oh, this is absolutely going to help the president of the United States in his reelection. I don't necessarily know that it is. Because you look at independent voters, you look at the, the proverbial soccer mom, female voters, they're really nervous about the country. They're, they really want calm. And so I don't think this helps the president per se. I, I think the left it, it has it within them to overplay their hand on this and really help the president. But by and large, I, I think what's going to happen is the, the president who can suggest calm and healing is the president who's going who's gonna to be president after 2020. And the Biden campaign wants to capitalize on this. I, I think it's very notable. Biden kept his mouth shut over the weekend. He waited until the end of the weekend to come out and say, we, we don't need these riots and whatnot. But the president has the bully pulpit and he should use it. He should not squander the opportunity to reset on this and actually focus on the idea of, of equity and, and being able to sue the police when they take your civil rights. Being able to go after the system. I mean, if the president is the great disruptor of the system, then he needs to disrupt the system by getting rid of qualified immunity at this point. Uh, it would be a simple thing for him to be able to do. He, I think, began a little bit over the weekend with his statement at NASA. Here he is at NASA to watch the, the, the blast off. This is what he said about George Floyd. The death of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis was a grave tragedy. It should never have happened. It has filled Americans all over the country with horror, anger, and grief. Yesterday, I spoke to George's family and expressed the sorrow of our entire nation for their loss. I stand before you as a friend and ally to every American seeking justice and peace. And I stand before you in firm opposition to anyone exploiting this tragedy to loot, rob, attack, and menace. Healing, not hatred, justice, not chaos, are the mission at hand. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm chuckling here because I'm, I'm seeing a, a couple of people who are mad at me. Uh, with my reaction to what the president said, that he should stay out of it, that he should just, he, he'll just make it worse. I, I personally think that the president's tone here is great, but I'm seeing listeners chiming in online say, no, 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 he needs to avoid this. He, did, did you not hear his line here? Now, what the problem is that they're not focused on what he just said right there. They're focused on this part of what he said. We support the overwhelming majority of police officers 
who are incredible in every way and devoted public servants. They keep our cities safe, protect our communities from gangs and drugs, and risk their own lives for us every day. No one is more upset than fellow law enforcement officers by the small handful who fail to abide by their oath to serve and protect. My administration will stop mob violence and will stop it cold. It does not serve the interest of justice or any citizen of any race, color or creed, for the government to give into anarchy, abandon police precincts, or allow communities to be burned to the ground. Won't happen. Those making excuses or justifications for violence are not helping the downtrodden, but delivering new anguish and new pain. From day one of my administration, we have made it a top priority to build up distressed communities and revitalize our crumbling inner cities. We fought hard with Senator Tim Scott and many others to create opportunity zones, helping to draw a surge of new investment to the places in our country that need it most. We must all work together as a society to expand opportunity and to create a future of greater dignity and promise for all of our people. See, I like that message, but the people who are chiming in on, on social media that I'm, I'm snickering over are really upset about his tough talk law and order stuff at the beginning of that part. And his tweets over the weekend. Now, his tweets certainly did draw criticism. His tweets drew criticism, for example, from Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who, who he's mentioned positively. Uh, Tim Scott said his, his when the looting starts, the shooting starts wasn't helpful. And I tend to agree with Tim Scott that the president maybe should have stayed away from some of his statements on Twitter. But that speech at NASA that that's he needs more of that and someone needs to tell you know so apparently there was a crisis meeting at the White House at Axios which has some very good sources of the White House so there was a crisis meeting at the White House with the president explaining to him that independent and female voters really are mad at him right now and that he's going to lose his reelection if he can't figure out a way to get those people back and part of that is stop uh, spinning them up on stuff on social media and uh, what they perceive is he's pouring gasoline on a fire and they don't like it. Uh, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, also admonishing the president on his tweet. Well, those are not constructive tweets without any question. I I'll say this. I spoke with the president yesterday morning and he and I had a good conversation about what are the next steps. I told him what I'm going to tell you, which is, Mr. President, it helps us when you focus on the death, the unjustified, in my opinion, the criminal death of George Floyd. Those tweets are very helpful. It is helpful when you say what you said yesterday, which is that it's important for us to recognize the benefit of nonviolent protest. It is helpful when you respond to my request to have the Department of Justice led by Attorney General Barr have a commission and a conversation around race and justice in this nation. Mr. President, it is helpful when you lead with compassion. But, 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 but Senator Scott, I'm about a minute yesterday left. Did you, did you? There are so many things the president can do right now 
There are so many things he can do. The problem is the White House staff is divided on what to do. But I think the polling does show, and I mentioned this the other day, the, the, the underlining basis of the polling, and, and don't tell me the polling's wrong. It is so consistent that people just want calm. And the left, of course, uh, they're going to agitate as best they can to continue to disrupt to ensure there can't be calm. The president has the ability, though, with his bully pulpit, the president has the ability to point out that, to point out the, the fact, I mean, for example, that the left wanted everyone to shelter in place until it was time to come out and protest. The, the president can point these things out and say, you know what? I'm the law and order guy who will make things right because because it's a, impacted me. The, the the overzealous hand of law enforcement's come after me and mine. They've come after you and we'll make it right. I'm the guy to do it because it's happened to me. He can make that message. Joe Biden can't. You know, I, I, I got to read this this tweet by my buddy Drew Holden. Um, so, Yamichi uh, Alcindor, who is the PBS reporter what the for the White House, um, what's her actual description here? Uh, yes, uh, PBS NewsHour White House correspondent, NBC News, MSNBC contributor. Drew Holden points out, she said uh, Donald Trump was accusing rioters of being anarchists without evidence. And then she posted a picture that included a protester spray painting the anarchy A symbol on a public building in broad daylight. Yeah, uh, good little hipsters that they are, and of course it's a it's a white dude in 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 skinny leggings spray painting the A. Um, it, it's amazing. Remember Don Lemon's defense of Antifa? Uh, There's this he he gave this this uh, lengthy defense of Antifa and how Antifa. Uh, you know the the media just loves Antifa, and it it. it they wanted to try to cover for him that they wanted to protect Antifa. They, they wanted to, they wanted to make sure people knew that Antifa wasn't bad. That Antifa, they, they were, they were good people. Antifa was, uh, the staggering hypocrisy of the media on this In fact, let me see. Yep. Yeah, word search. That makes it easy. Listen, I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally in the eyes of the law. Yeah, but in the eyes of good and evil, here's the argument. They are strictly principled anti-fascists. And what they see in the Trump administration and what they see happening in this country, they see, they see the neo-fascism that we see. And they've taken a principled stand to stand against white supremacists and white nationalists wherever they may show up. It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's... You know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. I think that a lot of people recognize that when pushed, self-defense is a legitimate response to white supremacy and neo-Nazi violence. The problem is to equate the violence in reaction against bigotry with the bigotry itself is to misunderstand the fact that when you go to cancer treatment, the radiation is tough treatment, but it is meant to remove the cancer. There's a group of anti-fascists called the Black Bloc, which do tend to get violent. Their idea is, look, non-violent hasn't worked and we are going to try to stop this but they wouldn't have been there they wouldn't have been anywhere near there had it not been for the fact that white supremacists neo-nazis were out scaring the living daylouts out of most of the people in that town thuggishness is thuggishness wherever it comes from politically and we should be the first to call it out i disagree (laughs) 
I disagree. Yeah. Uh, so the media is, is emotionally, ideologically invested in supporting Antifa. The media likes Antifa. It's going to be real hard to get the media to cover this accurately, given the media's prior love affair with Antifa. They think Antifa, first of all, they don't really know. They, they, they've got no real knowledge of what's happening. They are are willing to take the the press briefings, the press clippings of Antifa, and peddle them as truth, even though they're not. Uh, and it wasn't just Antifa, and, and that's true. There there were a lot of other groups out there, uh, and there were a lot of foreign agitators as well on social media trying to stir things up. Here again, the National Security Advisor to the President, Robert O'Brien. Well, Senator Rubio is spot on, and I've seen a number of tweets from the Chinese today that are, are taking some sort of, of pleasure and solace in, uh, in what they're seeing here. And I want to tell our foreign adversaries, uh, whether it's a, a, you know, a Zimbabwe or a China, uh, that the difference between us and you is that that, that officer who killed uh, George Floyd, he'll be prosecuted, he'll be investigated, he'll be prosecuted, he'll receive a fair trial. These foreign agitators are online spreading disinformation. Be careful what you read on social media, but interestingly enough, Twitter doesn't seem to want to fact check any of them. They only just want to fact check the president of the United States, which in and of itself is a problem. Father's Day can be stressful trying to find the perfect gift for your dad. Thankfully, Tommy John's, the revolutionary underwear and clothing brand, knows that comfort is for everyone, even your dad. So gift him the softest, most breathable base layer he's ever worn. Their new and improved men's underwear is now twice as durable as his current pair and infinitely more luxurious, guaranteed. Plus, Tommy John is offering their best Father's Day delivery with 25% off site-wide, including easy-to-gift sets that you can order straight from your phone directly to your dad's door. All of Tommy John's layers are built for next-level comfort. Whether you're on the hunt for lounge pants, lazy-day joggers, or the softest Zoom-ready tees and polos for you or your dad... Any you've ever worn, Tommy John's has you covered. And remember, to get your order in before June 17th ensures your gift arrives before Father's Day. Tommy John's is the perfect gift for all the dads in your life. Delivery comes with comfort to your dad's door with 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Eric. That's TommyJohn.com slash Eric for 25% off site-wide. See the site for details. Tommy John, great underwear, great comfort, great loungewear. Just great, well-made products. It'll give your dad something comfortable to put on for Father's Day. Hello and welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show way across the United States now through the series of tubes known as the Internet all over the state of Georgia as well. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We can move on to a degree from the rioting. Let me give you an update on where we are in the state of Georgia right now with the virus. Remember the virus? Amazing how the, I I think part of it is the media was just ready to be done with the COVID-19 news cycle. I know I have been for a while. Uh, We still got to pay attention to it some, but we've crossed 2000 deaths in the state. Now, 2055 deaths, 8,033 total hospitalizations, 47,496 confirmed cases. But the good news is the number of people in the hospital continues to decline. We are now at um, we, we are now at 800 cases in the hospital at the beginning of May, we were at 15, 1600 people in the hospital. So the number keeps headed in the right direction. And, and now we've got all these, all these, prog- it almost makes you wonder if they were serious 
it seems like they were okay with locking everybody down to keep you in, in inside when uh, they were worried that the economy might restart, but they're okay with you going outside in large groups without masks if you're willing to wreck the economy. I mean, it just it doesn't seem to me that there's a coincidence uh, in the progressives who demanded you stayed home for two months. Uh, well past, uh, they move from flatten the curve to, well, we can't leave our houses until there's a cure. And then suddenly people wanted to tear, burn down businesses. They're like, okay, you can, you can go do that. You can, it's almost like they really do want to wreck the economy. And it's like they, they really do want to, to just cause disruption. It's like they really do want to harm the president and make it hard for him to win re-election. Uh, and, and they'll do whatever it takes. And that is whether it is uh, stay home so that you can't wreck the economy or uh, go out and, and burn everything down. It's just fascinating that the pushback from so many in the left is that these people out there are um, are white supremacists when it's clearly you can tell, you know, Antifa does have a uniform that black clad, they, they dress in black, they cover their face, they, they wear Palestinian um Palestinian protester head garments. I forget what you call those things now. Um, and they're, they're all a bunch of 20-something white kids. In fact, there was a scene in uh, some place. Somebody just said this to me. Where, where was this, this video? Obviously, we can't uh, play it on. This appears to be in Washington, D.C. Uh, Black Lives Matters was actually having a peaceful protest. And some white guy is trying to hammer the sidewalk to get bricks and the black lives matters protesters tackle the guy uh, for trying to disrupt and be violent. Uh, it, it just fascinating to watch the black lives matters. People turn on the Antifa people. I played this montage at the end of the last hour. I want to play it one more time though, because you got to remember that so much of the media has been emotionally invested in defending Antifa, naturally, naturally, they would l jump at the chance to say it had to be the white supremacist rioting and not the Antifa kids rioting. I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally. In the eyes of the law, yes. But in the eyes of good and evil, here's the argument. They are strictly principled anti-fascists. And what they see in the Trump administration and what they see happening in this country, they see, they see the neo-fascism that we see. And they've taken a principled stand to stand against white supremacists and white nationalists wherever they may show up. It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's... You know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. I think that a lot of people recognize that when pushed, self-defense <clears throat> is a legitimate response to white supremacy and neo-Nazi violence. The problem is to equate the violence in reaction against bigotry with the bigotry itself is to misunderstand the fact that when you go to cancer treatment, the radiation is tough treatment, but it is meant to remove the cancer. There's a group of anti-fascists called the Black Bloc, which do tend to get violent. Their idea is, look, non-violent 
violence hasn't worked and we are going to try to stop this. But they wouldn't have been there. They wouldn't have been anywhere near there had it not been for the fact that white supremacists, neo-Nazis were out scaring the living daylouts out of most of the people in that town. Thuggishness is thuggishness wherever it comes from politically and, and we should be the first to call it out. I disagree. <laughs> Don Lemon doesn't want to call out that violence. Chris Cuomo emotionally defending. Not, not all violence is equal. Some is justified. Um, there is a real problem with violence on the left, and, and they're projecting on most days when it comes to the right. And we're seeing that uh, around the country as these private businesses are being destroyed. And it's very interesting to hear the, the Democratic voices who hate health insurance and believe that health insurance doesn't actually make you whole are out there saying, oh, just just the property and casualty insurance. It, it'll make good on stuff. So, so health insurance is bad, but property casualty, it, it's a-okay. Everybody need, everybody's got that, so it's okay. Uh, so burn down the businesses. Our moral betters in the press are, are showing their vapidness to a degree. Now, it, it is interesting to hear calls from, remember, members of the press say, you, you can't go to church. You can't go to church. You can't go, you can't go to your business. You can't go get a haircut. Some places are still locked down. You know, in, in California, that church lost the case before the Supreme Court over going back to church. Uh, the governor, part of, I think part of what influenced John Roberts's decision they were siding with the liberals on the court was that, in fact, uh, churches are starting to reopen in, in California. Yeah, John Roberts sided with the liberals on the Supreme Court to say that uh, churches couldn't complain. If if every similar business got to be got to be closed, then churches got to be closed, too. Even Kavanaugh and Gorsuch wrote dissents opposing that logic. But it is interesting to see a bunch of people on the left who have been saying that um, that you don't you don't need to go to church. You don't need to go get a haircut. But, hey, if you want to go riot in a crowd without a mask on, go for it. All the media shaming for the last couple of weeks. Remember the media shaming of the people going to the beach in Florida? Never mind. There's not a documented case anywhere in the world of someone outside transmitting coronavirus. There, there has actually not been. I, I take that back. In one study in China of 7,900 people, one person is suspected to have gotten coronavirus from outside. One. But in no other study in any other country has anyone been documented getting coronavirus by being outside. And yet for weeks, the media shamed everyone about going outside. Now, suddenly, suddenly, it's okay to be outside, even without a mask on. Uh, although, uh, let's be honest here, most of the Antifa folks were wearing masks. Maybe we need to, to you know, the governor here in Georgia uh, suspended enforcement of the anti-mask law. Maybe he needs to go back to, to doing that and say you can't wear a mask in public. Maybe. But um, the media shaming is suddenly gone. Now, is the virus going to spread? That reminds me, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who I will get to here in a minute, uh, actually said that. Uh, as protesters spilled into metro communities this weekend, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms offered demonstrators a few words of advice. If you were out protesting, you probably need to go get a COVID test this week, she said during a press conference Saturday evening. Local and national health experts echoed the mayor's concerns given some unknowns of how the virus might be transmitted. 
there is little that we know about how protests or events like this impact transmission, uh, said Emory infectious disease expert, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. It is not good, and it is not good for a variety of reasons. Sparked by the death of George Floyd, who died Monday after being pinned down by a then Minneapolis police officer. Protests in Atlanta and other major cities drew large crowds into the streets this past week, and hundreds gathered downtown and in other parts of the metro Atlanta area, linking arms, standing in close proximity, and chanting or shouting. Some wore masks, but many did not, raising concerns of how the protests may alter the trajectory of Atlanta's COVID-19 transmission rates in the coming weeks. I'm sure they'll blame Brian Kemp. I'm sure if the virus starts going back up in the city after these protests, they'll blame Brian Kemp. I do think it's funny, Andrea Young, who's the executive director for the ACLU in Georgia, let me let me give you this quote. Uh, she says, you have a First Amendment right to be present in public spaces to express your views. Attending a protest is an individual decision, but certainly we would always encourage people to follow the guidelines of science and health professionals when they're out in public. It is hard to say you should go to the grocery store but not follow your conscience when something is calling you to be present and stand for justice. Uh, yep, okay. On Sunday, Scott Gottlieb, the former commissioner of the FDA, warned that the national protest could lead to an uptick in the virus. He said on CBS News Face the Nation, quote, there's going to be a lot of issues coming out of what's happened in the last week, but one of them is going to be that chains of transmission will have become lit from these gatherings. Now, here's my question for you. If there are no spikes in the virus, in in three weeks, we're not seeing a major escalation in the virus. In fact, by the way, there's a story out of Italy that uh, Italy has wound down that they can't find the virus in the wild. And it appears what they're finding is a weakened coronavirus. It appears over time not to have gotten worse, but a weaker strain. But if the virus hasn't spiked in three weeks, can we have baseball? If the virus hasn't spiked in three weeks, can we have golf again? If the virus hasn't spiked in three weeks, can we go back to sports, please? Can can we go back to stadiums? Can we go back to hanging out? Can we go back to normal? If we're having all these protests around the country with all these people not covering their faces, except Antifa members burning down targets, if, if we can do all of this, can we go have sports now? Can we go back to bars and nightclubs? By the way, uh, today is the day that bars and nightclubs in Georgia can start opening again. I'm not sure whether they will or not. Some of them, the burdens are too much for them to actually do. But can, can we go back to normal, please? If the virus doesn't spike in three weeks after all this stuff, because that would suggest to me it actually isn't as big a thing now as it was a few months ago. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. Let's go to the phones, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Cliff, calling from Warner Robins, Georgia. Welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good, Eric. I enjoy your show. and listen often. Uh, came up with a solution for churches to be able to meet. We can just meet and call it a protest, can't we? <laughs> yes. Yes, you can. Uh, a, a social justice protest. You should be able to meet for certain. <laughs> and then we're just going to really do preaching, a lot of singing, and a lot of preaching. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I, I mean, some of the great church hymns of of the last three centuries have been the protest songs for the civil rights movement. So you you just you sing those songs and say it's a protest, and there's nothing the cops can do. Apparently, 
we shall you can you, we we shall overcome um and you name it uh the old rugged cross i think you can sing that one too and get away with it that's right and yeah. soldiers for christ <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna get us both in trouble cliff you're gonna get us both in trouble Th- thank you very much for the phone call <laughs> i gotta watch myself I head down that road but you know cliff's got a great point I mean, the media that uh, literally a week ago, the American media was shaming churches for wanting to meet, even socially distancing within sanctuaries. And now, so, oh, hey, group, they're burning down a target, uh, civil rights. Whatever happened to the shaming? Um, It's it just, it's, it's, it's striking to me uh, that how quickly the media, and I really do, if I'm honest about this, if I'm not a cynical person about this, let's be honest. If I'm not a cynical person, I really do think that part of the media is, they're not glad about the rioting, but they are, they are glad to have a topic to move on to. They are glad to have a topic Uh, that they can focus on other than COVID-19 because they have been in the, um, they've been in this COVID-19 news cycle for three months now, March, April, May, they've been in this cycle. It has not gone away. They they left. Remember impeachment? Wow, that happened. Yeah, impeachment happened January and into February, and then suddenly we hit the COVID-19 cycle, and there's been nonstop. And and I do think, in all honesty, I think behind the scenes there are some members of the press that go, oh, they may overplay their hands. we we got to cover from uh, if co- cover for them as best we can. I mean, let, let, let's not... Let, let's not distract from what's happening with some members of the press out there. They literally, you had the, the people in Minnesota when I was like, oh, we believe it's Trump supporting white white supremacists who are doing all this. And oh, it's been proven. The, the governor and the mayor said so. By the way, that mayor in Minneapolis, what an adult. That guy is completely overwhelmed. Somebody sent me a, a note the other day and said that he expects the mayor of Minneapolis, who is clearly overwhelmed in the job, to resign. And I wrote him back and I said, no, the dude's not going to resign in this day and age when you're overwhelmed and incompetent. You don't resign. You blame Trump. Something's going to have to happen on this protest. Tom Cotton is on social media right now saying, uh, call out not just the National Guard, call out the military. we got a constitutional obligation to ensure a republic in each state. And these people are are upending that. So take swift action. Here's Bill Barr, uh, the attorney general. The attorney general is making a statement on the George Floyd investigation. Let's listen. It's real and legitimate. Accountability for his death must be addressed and is being addressed through the regular process of our criminal justice system, both at the state and at the federal level. That system is working and moving at exceptional speed. Already initial charges have been filed by the state. That process continues to move forward and justice will be served. Unfortunately, with the rioting that is occurring in many of our cities around the country, the voices of peaceful protest are being hijacked by violent radical elements. Groups of outside radicals and agitators are exploiting the situation to pursue their own separate and violent agenda. In many places, it appears the violence is planned, 
organized and driven by anarchic and left extremist groups, far left extremist groups, using Antifa-like tactics, many of whom travel from outside the state to promote the violence. We must have law and order on our streets and in our communities, and it is the responsibility of the local and state leadership in the first instance to halt this violence. Listen, it is very interesting uh, to me to note the attorney general coming out and, and using Antifa-like tactics, not necessarily saying Antifa itself, but to then watch the media suddenly say that, oh, it can't be because Bill Barr says it is. Do, do we want truth or not? Do we want accurate reporting or not? But also note that it, as Bill Barr and others are pointing out, it is against the law to travel across state lines to engage in these sorts of activities, uh, to, to engage in rioting and destruction of property. It becomes a federal crime. And a lot of these people, we do know that a lot of the people who have been jailed in these cities are not locals. In fact, in Minneapolis, local law enforcement pointed out that uh, overwhelmingly the people who were arrested were from not Minnesota. We see these roving bands of Antifa. And by the way, this happens all over the place. Uh, th this happens all over the place. We see Antifa going in and uh, doing these sorts of things. We see Antifa going in and uh, disrupting places. And we see the media covering for them. We see the media uh, protecting them. We see the media refusing to denounce them. We see Democratic politicians doing the same. And they do it over and over and over and over. Uh, they they want to blame the white supremacists. They want to blame the Trump supporters. They don't actually want to acknowledge Antifa. Wonder why that is. But in fact, we know it's them. We also know that there is, in fact, foreign. Uh, there are there are foreign disruptors involved. Uh, in fact, in Minnesota, law enforcement websites were hacked. Uh, or at least tried to be taken down uh, from people overseas. So the rest of the world is kind of looking at this and wondering what on earth is happening. I will tell you, though, uh, there actually is a star out there. A star is born. I wonder how long it's going to be before dirt starts dropping on Mare Bottoms of Atlanta. Uh, I want to talk about her and her performance when we come back because she really stole the national spotlight this weekend. And that's got to make the Abrams supporters out there rather upset that she got so much positive attention. Stacy, who? Uh, th that seems to be the reaction from a lot of people. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, for months and months on end, Stacey Abrams has gotten the national spotlight. Stacey Abrams has been all over the news, and uh, the mayor of Atlanta is suddenly outshining Stacey Abrams. She has become the media darling. Interestingly enough, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, was one of the first people out to endorse Joe Biden. And she has held with Joe Biden. She has been a Biden surrogate. Uh, she has answered for Joe Biden. And now she is Lady Lana. And I got to tell you, there are a lot of people who dislike Keisha Lance Bottoms for a variety of reasons. She and I disagree pretty vehemently across the board on political stuff. But I thought she handled herself well over the weekend. Uh, basically telling people, uh, go home or I can't protect you. 
that uh, people need to be have space to protest, but violence uh, will be met by the police. Now, I, I don't necessarily think that the Atlanta police had the greatest moment. I was impressed with Atlanta's police chief on Friday night. For those of you around the state who missed this, this happened in different parts of the country, but really started in Atlanta. The police chief in Atlanta, I, I forget her name, but she she waded into the crowd and began talking to the protesters and telling them there, there's no curfew. You're not in trouble for protesting. Just keep it peaceful. And she interacted with the protesters. And she really, after the Antifa goon had tried to yank the bike away from the police officer, things started heating up. She came out and tried to defuse the situation. And then it escalated. You know, one of the interesting things that was going on in Atlanta on Friday night that that people, reporters witnessed, is there were these white kids uh, all dressed up in black with their faces covered, very typical for the Antifa movement, who would start running in the crowd as if they were being chased by something. And the this is something that the Antifa movement does. They act as if they're being charged or they're running from stuff. Sometimes they'll do it as a pack, and they will run screaming, telling people to move. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to develop a herd mentality within the crowd of people protesting to make them scared that something's coming. And then they start rioting uh, very much like a herd of animals running away from something, trampling everything in their path. It's one of the things that they do to try to get this stuff going. And, And the police in Atlanta were smart enough not to engage with it. But the police in Atlanta, for some reason, were letting them destroy all these businesses instead of taking action. Uh, And and in their defense, they said that uh, they didn't want to lose lives, uh, that that property was replaceable, lives were not. But I still think they should have been more aggressive than they were. I mean, so kudos to the police chief for going in and talking to the protesters and calming the situation at that one point. But once it de-escalated or once it escalated completely, Uh, They should have taken more action. But the mayor herself, I thought she did a good job. And she's getting all sorts of criticism from the usual suspects out there who just, uh, they they either don't like her because she's black or a Democrat. They they don't like her because they disagree with her politics. I I do think you've got to be willing to disagree with people in their politics and still say, you know what? You did a good job there. Uh, And the mayor of Atlanta, I think, has done so over the weekend, having regular press conferences, being very firm, uh, speaking as a black mom to to the the young people out in the city who were doing what they were doing. I just I thought it was commendable. And it's it's the usual suspects uh, who are, are going after her. And I think she deserves praise. You know, I I do find there's a class of people who can't bring themselves to say anything nice about anyone they disagree with politically. And thankfully, I am not one of those those people. But it is just uh, crazy to me to see the amount of hate coming her way dealing with this difficult situation and meanwhile what is what i think is good is you know she and the governor have parted ways or at least they had parted ways on his reopening of the state she came out was critical of him and has since come out and said she was wrong that the virus did not start spreading again the way she thought it was and now atlanta is moving on to phase two of a slow reopening and she and the governor have yet again been working well together It's good to have a governor in Georgia who works well with the mayor of Atlanta. She also fired two police officers. So there were two uh, police officers in Atlanta. Uh, They were black, and the the, um, people that they were going after were also black. They were, I think, from uh, 
Atlanta, Clark, Clark University. Um, and the police body cam shows that the police were, were trying to drag these two people out of their vehicle. They weren't doing anything. They were trying apparently to get away from the situation and the police officers stopped them, uh, dragged them from their vehicle uh, using excessive force. The mayor fired the two of them based on the body cam footage. And now she's out there telling people they need to to go get COVID-19 tests if they were protesting that uh, they could very well be spreading the virus. I just think, you know, so she's been in the spotlight. So now you, you do need to know she went on TV over the weekend. She was also very critical of the president. Uh, saying she thought the president uh, did not de-escalate the situation, but his tweets made it worse, uh, that he wasn't showing leadership. So she's being very critical of the president. Uh, and But she was trotted out all over the place. She was on, uh, I believe, NBC with Meet the Press. She was on CNN with Jake Tapper. Uh, I think she went on ABC with George Stephanopoulos. I think, don't hold me to that one. I know she went on the other two, getting lots of media exposure. And so here, here's the dynamic. For those of you who don't live in Atlanta, here's what you need to understand. Keisha Lance Bottoms was not the chosen one. Keisha Lance Bottoms was not the chosen one. Uh, when Kasim Reed left, Keisha Lance Bottoms was not the one that he wanted uh, to be mayor. He, in fact, he backed someone else. And Keisha Lance Bottoms made it into the runoff against a woman named Mary Norwood, who uh, is white and, and long suspected of having Republican sympathies in the city of Atlanta, even though it's a nonpartisan race. And they ultimately rallied to Mayor Bottoms because she was the black lady running against Mary Norwood. But the Atlanta political establishment didn't like her. They wanted someone else, not her. And so when she became mayor, she's had to exert herself behind the scenes and level her influence behind the scenes very delicately. For example, the mayor of Atlanta single-handedly controls the greatest economic engine in the Southeast United States. Uh, that is a Two Dead Mayors International Airport in Atlanta, Georgia. The city council in Atlanta has very minimal oversight. The chain of command goes all the way to the mayor, bypassing the city government. Uh, the, the oversight board is appointed by the mayor. The mayor appoints the, the financial people. Uh, the mayor oversees the contracting. The mayor oversees the airport. It, it, is, it is her airport as mayor of Atlanta. And in fact, there's been an effort in the legislature to take that away from her, to take that away from the city of Atlanta overall. The, the argument being that the Atlanta airport is the biggest economic driver in the southeast and it affects all of Georgia, not just Atlanta. Therefore, it should be overseen by Georgia, not Atlanta. Very much like the port authority down in uh, Savannah is overseen by the state, not Savannah. They have thus far not been successful in it, but part of the issue there is that uh, they do understand that the mayor of Atlanta is in a somewhat weak position. She does not have the, uh, has not in the past had the political clout. Uh, Kasim Reed uh, was was not a supporter of hers. Shirley Franklin was not a supporter of hers. Uh, the A lot of the Atlanta City Council did not back her in the race, and yet she still won. She beat them all. And instead of going along with it, very much what you've seen at the national level with the president winning, uh, going along with it, people have given her positive lip service while behind the scenes working to undermine her from within her own party. And her handling of this situation, frankly, has given her a lot of political clout. Uh, 
her handling of this situation has been met with praise by Republicans and Democrats alike. She has gotten the National Press Circuit Tour. She's gotten the support of the vice pre- former Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden. She's got Democrats saying, hey, you know, Joe, maybe you should look at her for vice president. So I can only imagine that Stacey Abrams supporters are going to start dropping opposition research on Keith Shillan's bottoms. I can only imagine she is going to have to withstand uh, a pile of character assassination because of the support she has gotten in the last 72 to 96 hours. I mean, just think about it. This is a woman who she was able to, I, 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 I dance carefully here comparing her to the president. I know she would not like that, and it's not my intention to be insulting. But both President Trump and Keisha Lance Bottoms disrupted their own political parties. The political parties lined up people who were supposed to be next in leadership, and both of them came in and they completely disrupted it. And what you see is within their own parties, a lot of lip service and behind the scenes, a lot of smack talk. Now, the Democrats will, of course, rally to her and the Republicans to Trump. But, you know, it's like very much you go to a green room, you go to a green room at Fox or CNN or really anywhere. And behind the scenes, there's still a lot of people who will privately criticize the president who publicly will hump his leg. I, I experience this all the time. Uh, I, I, I'm beginning to believe that oftentimes I'm the only person who will tell you publicly what I think privately because you go into these things. It's just mendacious. You, you, you go in and they're, they're deeply, I can't believe the president's doing this, that, blah, 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 blah. And then they get on TV. Oh, he's, he's, he's the second coming of, of the Lord. And I'm sure the Democrats are like this with Keisha Lance Bottoms. They, they, they privately think she's an upstart that, that she hadn't earned it. And yet she got it. They had to rally to her in the runoff to stop Mary Norwood. And yet she's proving her competence. Now, listen, she's not perfect. There's still flaws. Violence still broke out. She's still the, in charge of the police. And I don't think the Atlanta police did that great of a job this weekend. I, I, I look at it, what happened in downtown and in Buckhead. I, I think it's hard to argue that the police effectively did their job, essentially allowing people to destroy private property. Thinking, eh, insurance will take care of that. I don't think they should have done that. Because ultimately that will drive up costs. And, and some of those businesses that were already on shaking footing, they're not going to be able to come back. But overall, I think she had a pretty firm and effective um, presence this weekend. And I suspect that's going to start giving her some buzz on this vice presidential stuff. And I suspect that means that, that uh, some of the other people out there are going to do what they can on the Democratic side. They're going to do what they can to come out and throw some of the dirt out at her that came up during the Atlanta mayoral race. Because she is overshadowing a lot of people right now, including Stacey Abrams. And Abrams wants the job. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the situation if if Bottoms becomes a real contender for VP? Because Abrams covets it relentlessly. Abrams supporters, you know, in Georgia, it's kind of an open, for those of you not in Georgia where I am, it is kind of at this point an open secret that a lot of Democrats are brimming with resentment over Abrams dominating the conversation. It, it's real hard for some of these other Democrats to get traction and attention when everyone is expected to stand in the shadow of Stacey Abrams. And now here comes Mayor Bottoms kind of standing on her own two feet outside of Stacey Abrams' presence. Some of these people are going to be really upset. And they're going to come for the mayor of Atlanta from the Democratic side 
and it's going to be amazing to watch it happen. Democrat on Democrat, um, slander and slur, all because she dared to be competent over the weekend and might just no longer be in the shadow of Stacey Abrams. You know, interestingly enough, someone who is getting attacked is John Lewis, uh, the civil rights icon and congressman. He's got pancreatic cancer. He's at home. He hasn't been able to work. Uh, He's been battling, and he came out and weighed in on the violence. Uh, He said on MSNBC, we must continue to teach the way of peace, the way of love, the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence, and never, ever give up on any of our brothers and sisters. We're one people. We're one family. To the rioters here in Atlanta and across the country, I see you and I hear you. I know your pain, your rage, your sense of despair and hopelessness. Justice has indeed been denied for far too long. Rioting, looting, and burning is not the way. Organize, demonstrate, sit in, stand up, vote, be constructive, not destructive. History has proven time and again that nonviolent, peaceful protest is the way to achieve the justice and equality that we deserve. He was praised uh, by a bunch of people from Martin O'Malley, the former governor of Maryland, to Ted Cruz, the U.S. senator. And he was loudly attacked. Loudly attacked by uh, young Antifa sympathetic people on Twitter. I I, I kid you not. uh, It is it's crazy to see the AJC having uh, some of this. A lot of it uh, emotional scars. Uh, and, um, it just, just over, I, I should say emotional. So I'm, I'm trying to read and talk at the same time, but it's not going well. Uh, th- this person, it's, it's anonymous people. Look how well that approach turned out for Martin Luther King Jr. And you, I'm sure you still feel the mental and physical scars from that, uh, says one anonymous person. Uh, and I'm, I tend to have a hard time with these stories where like what the AJC is doing here, they take one or two anonymous trolls on Twitter and say, ah, critics say, except this is actually a, a pretty big, um, issue with a lot of younger people here. Here's one person says, "I, I love you. You're a hero in my family, but we've organized. We sat in, we stood up, we voted. We've been doing this for decades. Maybe what the country needs is know that if you murder a black man in the streets, then every street in every major city will burn, says one. And this is an, a, a pretty big sentiment. Now, what is so interesting, oh, and, and here is a uh, what is Atlanta account. I hate to say this, but nonviolent protests haven't worked. It's why there's so much rage. History has proven time and again that nonviolent peaceful protest is the way to achieve justice and equality that we all deserve. I disagree. Um, Ask Gandhi. His nonviolent protest liberated a country. Martin Luther King's nonviolent protests were able to get the civil rights movement going, uh, the the sit-ins, the protests. You know, had the the Black Panther, the violence of the Black Panthers uh, and, and the Malcolm X philosophy dominated the civil rights movement, uh, I dare say it would not have been as successful as it was. And yet increasingly what we see are a group of people who go to public schools who have no sense of history. They don't learn history. My goodness, can you imagine how much worse things are going to get when the lies of the 1619 Project are taught in school as if they're true? My goodness gracious. But here comes John Lewis to say uh, protest, but be peaceful. 
the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, comes out and says uh, the way to have change is to register to vote and go vote, not to burn down buildings. And they attack her for that. Attack, 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 attack. It is remarkable to see, frankly. And they're not, it's not going to work. And see, here, here's here's my thinking. I, I, I don't think you can say that this helps the president. Because as I said in the first hour, the dominant prevailing underlying sentiment of the polling is that people are tired of, of, of the chaos. And right now they're blaming the president for the chaos. And they blame the president for this chaos. But I... The left has a, a habit, a, a habit of overplaying their hand on stuff like this. And I think we're beginning to see this as, as these protests continue. I, I think you see the left will overplay its hand on this. There are a lot of people, the polling suggests among a lot of women and independents, they don't like the president, but they like his policies. In fact, that's kind of an underlying sentiment of his campaign message. You watch some of the president's campaign messages and they say, you you don't have to like the president to recognize the job he's doing for America. And that's actually a sentiment out there. A lot of people do. They don't like him, but they like the job he's doing for America, but they're tired of the chaos. They are really freaking tired of day-to-day disruption. They're tired of riots. They're tired of the president's Twitter. They're tired of him picking fights. They're tired of the left picking fights. They're tired of the yeah, yeah, yeah on TV. They're, they're tired. They just want to break from it all, and they they feel like it's in your face, rub your nose in it every single day, and they're worn out. And right now, they blame the president. So I don't think these riots and whatnot actually help the president. I, there are a lot of people out there. I think it's cheap political sentiment to say, oh, it's the left doing this. Therefore, it helps the right now. I mean, you've got the media in overdrive right now saying it's not even the left. And some people are going to believe it. That idiot Joy Reid on MSNBC is all, this white supremacist doing this. Maybe your account was hacked by, by somebody. The FBI will have to look into it. Uh, but I don't think it necessarily helps the president. I think if it continues, though, that there's a perfect opportunity here for the president. I think if it continues, then there is an argument for the president that these people have overplayed their hands so tremendously uh, and that he's the only path back to normalcy. It's, It's striking to see the political dynamic right now, that the White House is nervous that the president may go off script and say something that makes the matter worse. He has a real golden opportunity to go say something to make it better right now. And when you've got young left-wing agitators going after a guy like John Lewis for saying we need to have peaceful protests, it opens the opportunity for the president. Father's Day can be stressful trying to find the perfect gift for your dad. Thankfully, Tommy John's, the revolutionary underwear and clothing brand, knows that comfort is for everyone even your dad. So gift him the softest, most breathable base layer he's ever worn. Their new and improved men's underwear is now twice as durable as his current pair and infinitely more luxurious, guaranteed. Plus, Tommy John is offering their best Father's Day delivery with 25% off site-wide, including easy-to-gift sets that you can order straight from your phone directly to your dad's door. All of Tommy John's layers are built for next-level comfort. Whether you're on the hunt for lounge pants, lazy day joggers, or the softest Zoom-ready tees and polos for you or your dad, any you've ever worn, Tommy John's has you covered. And remember, to get your order in before June 17th ensures your gift arrives before Father's Day. Tommy John's is the perfect gift for all the dads in your life. Delivery? 
comes with comfort to your dad's door with 25% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com slash Eric. That's tommyjohn.com slash Eric for 25% off site-wide. See the site for details. Tommy John, great underwear, great comfort, great loungewear, just great well-made products. It'll give your dad something comfortable to put on for Father's Day. Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here. It's my show. I'll give you a voice in it if you want to, though. You can call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Well, you know, I can't tell you the number of friends of mine who privately offered up a sentiment over the weekend that, man, kind of expecting something bad to happen with that shuttle launch that just seems to be the way things are going. Uh, What a great thing. Uh, Americans pause from their antagonism with each other uh, for a short time on Saturday and watched that rocket blast off uh, the SpaceX project with NASA taking those two astronauts to the space station. They, They docked successfully with the International Space Station. Americans launching from American soil for the first time since 2011. Here's the president. Nowhere is this more true than with our military, which we have completely rebuilt. Under my administration, we have invested two and a half trillion dollars in new planes, ships, submarines, tanks, missiles, rockets, anything you can think of. And last year, I signed the law creating the sixth branch of that already very famous United States Armed Forces, the Space Force. For every citizen who has eagerly waited for America to reignite those engines of will, confidence, and imagination that put a man on the moon, I stand before you to say, You need wait no longer. Through NASA's Artemis program, the United States is preparing for a crewed mission to Mars. Earlier this week, I saw the Orion capsules being worked on in this building. As part of the Artemis Moon to Mars program, those capsules will soon return Americans to lunar orbit For the first time in over 50 years, half a century, by 2024, our astronauts will return to the lunar surface to establish a permanent presence and the launching pad to Mars. The launching pad for Mars, going to the moon. I don't know that we're going to be able to afford it, but it is exciting, is it not? Uh, to read, watch the space launches, to to see them from America's War. I just it, it was it was an interesting moment though this weekend talking to several different friends of mine, level-headed, reasonable, professional friends of mine, highly successful in industry, chatting uh, with each other individually. A couple of us on a group chat, and and every single person just thought oh, I was kind of worried something was going to happen. That's just the way twenty twenty has been going. I saw somebody say 2020 feels like a like a series finale, <laughs> not a season finale. Right now, it feels like a series finale. Eh, yeah, maybe, um, maybe so. That they're throwing it all. We've got the White Walkers and Cersei Lannister to deal with all at one time. I, I, I yeah, I kind of get it. I do. 
but life goes on. Life goes on here in Georgia as well. Uh, school leaders uh, have new guidance from the state. Uh, this is from the AJC just released a few minutes ago. School leaders in Georgia have new guidance from the state about how to open in the fall and react to changing health conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic. The 10-page document was written by the state education and public health departments and covers the entire 2020 to 2021 school year. The report is the first official statewide guidance. The state's 180 school districts operate independently under the Georgia Constitution and absent an emergency mandate will decide whether and how to open their buildings this fall and when to close them should conditions warrant. Rather than rules, the guideline, the guidance comprises recommendations the school superintendents can consider with advice from local officials. The premise, said Matt Jones, chief of staff from the state school superintendent Richard Wood, is that the coronavirus will spread in differing intensities in different regions. What could work in one county might not work in another. The core of the document is a decision tree based on local conditions ranging from slightly modified traditional schooling in the best case to closed buildings like this past spring semester and the worst. In between, in areas with minimal to moderate spread of the coronavirus or a variety of options, these so-called hybrid schooling models minimize physical attendance to maximize social distancing in a variety of ways. In the AB model, schools would divide their enrollment in half. They might send one group into the buildings on Mondays and Wednesdays, the others on Thursday, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. They could all remain home on Friday where they would do distance learning using either online assignments or paper packets. Alternatively, schools could host one group in the morning and one in the afternoon. Another model has high school and maybe middle school students staying home full-time while younger students occupy the buildings. It was younger students generally who had a tougher time with remote learning in the spring. Also, if they're home, their parents can't go to work without finding childcare, which could be costly. Careful planning could go awry if anyone tests positive for the disease. The guidance recommends closing any area where an infected person has been and keeping them closed for 24 hours before cleaning and disinfecting. This would reduce capacity, potentially forcing some to stay home when it's their turn in the building. Given the logistical challenges and costs, both for the schools and parents who need child care, the guidance recommends using the hybrid option only if absolutely necessary. It also recommends a variety of by now familiar safety precautions, such as masks and hand sanitizers, calling for more extreme measures, such as if the conditions worsen. In even the best scenario, schools would not look normal. Hallways would be divided into travel lanes to minimize mixing. Schools would help health officials with contact tracing and specimen collection, and there will be signs everywhere advising about hygiene and safety protocol. The protocols become more intense in areas with more virus. In communities with moderate spread, water fountains would be turned off and replaced with bottled waters. Bus drivers would be given masks. Students would sit further apart on buses and in classrooms. Everyone should get screened for illness before entering buses and buildings. Floors should be marked to emphasize safe distancing in cafeterias and other high-volume areas. Classes could be staggered to reduce hallway congestion, or they could be held outdoors if the weather permits, and students would, as much as possible, be kept within insulated groups with the same teacher. Both teachers and families should be given the option to work or study from home. And lawyers and human resources personnel would be consulted to give teachers alternative assignments. It's a 10-page long booklet because the superintendent wanted something that was comprehensive and concise. But more advice is going to come. There's a 72-member panel appointed by the governor and the state school superintendent that will elaborate on topics when local leaders and public request more details. Schools will have to consider all these safety measures. At the same time, the state is imposing $1.3 billion in cuts to education funding. 
acquiring masks, disinfectants, fuel for extra bus runs, new technology for work at home days, and additional staffing. The guidance recommends employing more nurses in areas with substantial spread. It all adds to cost. It is going to get expensive to do this sort of stuff. You know, meanwhile, in Italy, there's actually some hopeful signs uh, that the virus may actually be weakening. Uh, we, we may be able to go back to normal. Let's see. The, this is from Reuters. Not exactly a, a propaganda. Well, yeah, they are for the Chinese. But nonetheless, the new coronavirus is losing its potency and has become much less lethal, a senior Italian doctor said on Sunday. In reality, the virus clinically no longer exists in Italy, says Alberto Zangrillo, the head of the San Rafael Hospital in Milan in the northern region of Lombardy, which has borne the brunt of Italy's coronavirus contagion. The swabs that were performed over the last 10 days show a viral load in quantitative terms that was absolutely infinitesimal compared to the ones carried out a month or two ago. Italy has the third highest death toll in the world from COVID-19 with 33,419 people dying since the outbreak in uh, the middle of February. It has the sixth highest global total number of cases. However, new infections and fatalities have fallen steadily in May, and the country is unwinding some of the most rigid lockdown restrictions introduced anywhere. Zangrillo said some experts were too alarmist about the prospect of a second wave of infections. We've got to get back to normal. Someone has to take responsibility for terrorizing the country. The government urged caution, saying it was too uh, too, too soon to claim victory, but a second doctor from Northern Italy has told the national ANSA news agency that he was seeing the virus weaken as well. The strength of the virus had two months ago is not the same strength it has today. It's clear today that COVID-19 disease is different from what it was. That's good news. We should, of course, be skeptical. We've been burned before. But it looks like it may not be as bad as we expected. And that surely, surely that is a good thing. Surely that is something that um, we should applaud. Surely that is something that should get us excited. Uh, and, And surely that is something that we as a society should be prepared to embrace that maybe we can get back to normal. I gotta tell you, the, the mask wearing comes in waves. I was in Publix on Saturday and I wore a mask because hardly anyone in there had a mask on. And then I went in there yesterday and I didn't have my mask. I I had, had forgotten it. And I went in and was delighted that pretty much everybody was in a mask. And I, I don't know what, what it is. It seems to me that Sunday shoppers wear masks and Saturday shoppers don't. And I don't know why that is, but that's been my experience these last several weeks. I've been, I've been talking to y'all about, about it, going into Publix, going into Fresh Market. Of course, everybody's got to wear a mask. Some people don't. They're not going to throw you out at this point. But it's just it, it's just interesting to see that on some days uh, you go into a place and everybody's wearing a mask. And on some days you go in and nobody's wearing a mask. It just depends on the people and it depends on the age and it depends on the group. We went to uh, Ace of Gray. So I got one of those Blackstone griddles and went to the Ace of Gray, which is a fantastic Ace hardware store over in Gray, Georgia, Middle Georgia, because uh, they had them in stock and they're hard to find in stock right now. And I went over there to pick it up. Uh, those poor people, their credit card machine was down uh, and it was cash or check only. They were having to call in credit cards and the place was swapped absolutely swamped 
hardly anybody was wearing a mask. Uh, my wife, my kid, and I, we, we all wore masks. Hardly anybody in there was wearing a mask. Everyone was keeping their distance, but nobody was wearing masks. And I just thought, wow, that that's just that that that's that's something to me. Even some of the employees weren't necessarily, um, and and people were okay. And you know, the virus isn't spreading, and the, and the data in Jones County, Georgia, is looking good. So God bless them. Um, and then I, I I went to Publix, and the same thing. That they're just there. There weren't a lot of people wearing masks, and I thought, man, did it, did I miss the memo? And then on Sunday, uh, it was kind of funny. I, I had to go to the local Ace uh, near me down the road for me and I had to go to Publix and everybody in both locations were in masks. And I just, it dawned on me that, you know, I've talked about this several times on radio of late and on Saturdays, it seems like the people who are out and about are not wearing masks. And on Sundays, the people who are out and about are, and I, I don't know what the demographic shift is, but at young, old alike, uh, it really depends. And it's just a fascinating dynamic of who does and who doesn't. And it's not, you know, the media plays it up as some sort of political shibboleth that uh, conservatives aren't wearing masks and progressives are. No, I can assure you, I I saw plenty of people I know to be uh, listeners of this program who are conservatives wearing masks on Sunday at the store. And plenty of people I know to be liberal on on Saturday at the store who, who weren't wearing masks. And when most people were, it was just, it's a, it's a weird phenomenon. Um, but I'm trying my best to still wear masks, although I really don't like them. And as the summer heat continues, it's going to be harder and harder, I think, for a lot of people to want to wear masks. I had to go the other day with my daughter. She put a uh, painting in a uh, art gallery downtown. It was part of one of her assignments. She's a very she's 14, very good painter, and her teacher wanted her to put one in the art gallery downtown. And we went down, and it was kind of bizarre. You had to had to wear a mask before you went in. Uh, everyone had to, if you got a pin to fill out the form, they wanted you to keep the pin. They didn't want you to leave the pin there. Everybody had to be socially distanced. We were the only people in there, and it was just the moment we came in, the guy who was all the way across the room from us put his mask on. We were in masks, and I just thought, you know, at some point, I mean, I agree with the public health officials. I haven't wanted to to, to dispute the ex, expert epidemiologist, but at some point it does just kind of feel like security theater. Very much like when you go through TSA these days. A lot of that stuff is just designed to make you think that they're doing something when they're really not. And it just seems like we're getting to that point with all of this. Maybe, maybe it's time to go back to normal. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, I sat down uh, on Friday with Senator Kelly Leffler. Uh, she has been cleared of any wrongdoing by the feds for those stock trades that her outside brokerage firms made for her. And uh, we talked about that. I talked about getting uh, the Georgia economy reopened. I will play that interview for you right now. Let's go to the phones to Scott. Welcome, Scott. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good. What's going on? Uh, well, I just wanted to comment about, uh, you know, you, felt, you feel like Trump uh, is going to take a lot of the blame uh, for what's been transpiring over the course of the, this past weekend. And with all this tweeting and, you know, things, stuff like that, uh, everybody that I know, uh, most everybody that I know, uh, I would say 90% of the people that I know, and I know quite a few people, I'm in sales. So I get out and I see a lot of people are diehard Trump supporters. And uh, I think that they enjoy his tweets because we can't trust most of what is reported over mainstream media. And we're getting it directly from the horse's mouth. Um, Also, uh, I think that Trump has curtailed some of his, uh, what 
some might consider inappropriate tweets. I think he's doing a lot better in that area. <laughs> he he has uh, improved. Were, yes. Yeah, no doubt. He's improved. Um, and I think that's just come with time. I mean, he's not a politician. He's not a career politician. But I think he's doing what it, take, what it takes to, see, to make this country what it should be. He's standing up for China. Uh, you know, I love his foreign policy. I love his domestic policy making. I mean, look what he's done for our economy. And then I think all of this is a hit job. Uh, people have tried to take him out from day one, from Russian collusion to, and I, I believe there's more to this uh, pandemic than, than what we all we know. And now that's kind of fizzled, and now we get these riots. And I believe a lot of that was organized and planned by potentially Antifa or other uh, radical left-wing groups. You know, I'm glad you say that part because I I think we're going to find out that a lot of this stuff was organized. Uh, In in fact, if you believe some of the stuff out there, and and I haven't wanted to spend a lot of time on it because a lot of it is is speculation and, and possible disinformation on social media, but uh, people are appear to be finding some of these flyers in various cities all, all about the coordinated efforts for these riots. Uh, and obviously, uh, when you've got people coming in from out of town, like, for example, go back to Minnesota, uh, they said mo- the majority of the people, the overwhelming majority of the people who were arrested were not even Minnesotans. There's white kids from other parts of the country who've come in there to cause trouble. It's not foreigners. It's it's a bunch of hipster, skinny jean clad uh progressive millennial Antifa members. I'm sorry, we're supposed to call them white supremacists today. I I do think that uh, those of us here in Georgia, I mean, most of the people around me are are big supporters of the president. And uh, we got to worry about the Wisconsin's and the Pennsylvania's and the Michigan's and the Iowa's and frankly, even the Arizona's these days. And I do think that the president right now is going to get the bulk of the blame, but I I still do think that it is very likely, highly probable, that the leftover plays its hand on this. If there are riots again tonight, you had the weekend, now there are going to be riots again tonight, uh, I just think that you're going to start seeing more and more people um, pushing back on the left on this, uh, that it's not the president. And I still think the president should address the nation. I said in the, in the first hour, if, if you weren't here, I think the president could give an address on this. I, I really do. And he could he could make start by making it about himself, that he himself has seen how uh, the, the law enforcement can overplay their hand and bully people and pressure people in doing things that they don't want to do and, and just take people's liberty away inappropriately he's been a victim of it in the fbi investigation look at what happened to poor mike flynn and we've got to do something about this that that justice must be blind and these rioters are distracting from what happened to george floyd they're making it about other things and we need to focus on the abuse of process the abuse of power uh the abuse against the american citizen whether it's abuse against the president or abuse against a a man no one ever heard of until a couple of weeks ago named george floyd Uh, and the only reason we know is because of uh, the video and that Americans should not have to go get video out to be outraged about stuff. Uh, we need to know that this stuff is happening and he's going to take action. And one of those actions is going to get rid of qualified immunity. Where police largely are, are given a shield of legal protection for doing things unless other police officers have previously done them and, and been told, no, you can't do that. There are ways for the president to engage on this 
and shift the conversation in his favor. And you'll have, of course, the hysteria from people like Don Lim saying, I don't believe you. And why aren't you going to bother this brother? But you know what? The president can roll with it. The, the, the problem is if the president goes on script with this stuff, when he goes off script, he's going to have to stay on message. He can go off script, but he's got to have the same message. And I don't know that he has the message discipline to do that. They're going to have to work with him on this, but it's possible for him to shift this conversation and win the argument. He's just got to engage. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. On Friday, I sat down uh, on my evening show with Senator Kelly Leffler. And uh, she, of course, has been cleared now by the Department of Justice and FBI. They were looking into this this stock trading uh, allegation against her. Uh, Diane Feinstein and Jim Inhoff, they all decided that all three uh, were not culpable. Richard Burr is still under investigation. Uh, but uh, it was worth highlighting that uh, they've dismissed him. And what you need to understand about the case is, re- regardless whether you like her or not, uh, the key issue is that she outsourced her management of her stock portfolio to uh, investment groups, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, and others. Uh, she and her husband both, and were not making the stock trades themselves, nor did they communicate to those groups to make the stock trades. The stock trades appear to have been made based on publicly available information, and, and now she and her husband have told their investment advisors to buy mutual funds and stock indices and not individual stocks. Uh, so here now, my conversation with Senator Leffler from Friday evening. Joining me by phone, uh, one of the two George Senators. Oh, if I can get to the call screening program. There it is. The screen keeps freezing. It is Senator Kelly Leffler joining me today. Senator, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm great. Congratulations. Uh, let, let me get this out of, out of the, the gate. You, you had all these people holding this stock nonsense over your head, and, and turns out you were right and they were wrong, and the Justice Department agrees. Well, that's right, Eric. The media got this completely wrong again. I've been completely exonerated, and I've said from the start I'd answer any questions. Uh, it was a political witch hunt. It's the same left-wing fake news that spreads false information about the president day in, day out. They've done this with impeachment, with the Russia investigation, and Michael Flynn now. So, look, I, it never distracted me. I have been working tirelessly for Georgians. I think they see that, and um, I'm glad to be able to, you know, clear this off the table and get back to talking about the things that matter to Georgians. Well, so I'm, I'm glad this is cleared and off the table. Uh, and I'm glad that they did this and, and not just for you, for some of these other people who, who were being looked at, uh, one apparently from North Carolina still has issues, but I'm, I'm glad cause it was very obvious uh, that you had done the right things when you, when you got into office. And so I'm glad you're cleared and I'm glad because now I don't feel like, like I'm guilty when I ask you a question about the stock market because <laughs> it's doing, I mean, the, the Dow was down slightly today, but it looks like we're starting to see the markets recognizing we're headed into an economic recovery. Well, I certainly hope that's the case, and and I'm truly so busy with my Senate work here, I, I don't follow it day to day, but I can tell you that it's vitally important that this state reopens, that our nation reopens, and I am so proud of Governor Kemp for leading our country out of this and for leading our state to open safely and quickly, because I got to tell you, when you look at these unemployment numbers, they're so staggering. I don't think we quite know what the end game could be here, but we're looking at 41 million Americans unemployed filing initial jobless claims in the last 10 weeks. That's pretty staggering. It is. And 
you were criticized, as was the governor, when he came out and said he was going to reopen the state. And uh, there was some media blowback in the national press towards you for saying you thought he was doing the right thing. And now it turns out, according to ABC News today, that none of the 18 states that followed Georgia's lead, including Georgia, have seen a statistical significant uptick in the virus. And yet people are starting to go back to work. That's right. And that's vitally important that we get people back to work. I've been going around the state in the past couple of weeks and talking with small businesses that we helped get PPP and talking to employees whose jobs were saved and so so impressed to see how they've been doing this safely. They're wearing masks. They have hand sanitizers. They have plexiglass dividers where needed. And so I think, look, we know how to do this. We can do it safely. We absolutely need to make sure that we can get back to school and church and work because the economic destruction could be much worse than what the virus uh, wrought on us. And, you know, I do have to say we, we mourn the lives lost and we have to hold China accountable for what they've done in creating the spread of this virus around the world. But we can't have Americans pay even more at this time than we already have in terms of lives and economics. Well, I want to ask you about China. The the president's press conference today, withdrawing from the World Health Organization, we continue as a country to benefit from cheaply produced products in China. And I'm wondering what your sense is on moving forward, what we might need to do economically to begin making sure that particularly our, our national security infrastructure and medicines are not dependent on a Chinese supply chain. Uh, This is critically important. You're absolutely right. And I applaud the president for holding China accountable. Uh, Midway through the the delivery of the relief through the CARES Act, I started developing a plan called the USA Rise Plan. And it was really about looking ahead of how do we make sure that this never happens again? And how do we use this opportunity to stand up American business? And one of the first tenants of it that it was called made in the USA. So it has four pillars made in the USA, grown in the USA, hiring in the USA and families in the USA. And it's critical that we get our supply chains less dependent on China. And to the extent that it also reduces the reliance on China, it also increases employment in our country. And so it'd be a great economic engine. So I think this is the right time to have those conversations and move in that direction. Let me ask you on on, one more thing on the Chinese situation. One of the pushbacks that uh, you'll get on this, I know Josh Hawley, David Perdue and others have as well, is that a plan like what you're you're structuring would raise prices on Americans. And and it's better that we get cheap stuff from China than than risk people seeing higher prices. Well, there's a delicate balance there. And I think what we have to do as a country is to have the right incentives. And as a businesswoman coming out of nearly three decades of working in business, you know, we have to look at the impact on on businesses and consumers here, but make sure we have the right incentives, whether it's the right uh, tax rate, the right employment structures. Um, I've recommended that as part of uh, the USA Rise plan that through year end that we remove the payroll tax and to incentivize hiring and make labor here more affordable. So I think there's things that we can do in a in a kind of a fair market way that that creates benefits for Americans and drives employment and opportunity while creating the stability of our supply chains. We shouldn't be dependent on China for medicine or other supplies.
And it, it, it just seems to me that given the situation in Hong Kong where the, there were still a lot of businesses in Hong Kong that stayed after the British gave it to China, that uh, now it just seems like it might be the perfect opportunity for the United States to find ways to incentivize some of those companies that stayed in Hong Kong to maybe consider pulling up and, and coming to the United States. Well, you know, certainly those incentives may already exist just by the sheer actions of the Chinese. Uh, I think there's a, probably a lot of discussions going on within international businesses to say, what is that position now? Because if we're treat, treating Hong Kong just like we're treating China, that's going to change the playing field dramatically. And I think it's going to, you know, companies will move quickly because if they have assets and resources and personnel there, they're going to want to protect those. And uh, it's definitely uh, going to impact Hong Kong in a very negative way, which is which is extremely unfortunate, um, but um, it's an opportunity for the United States to to strengthen what we have here. You know, it, it dawns on me, you're probably the, the best person on the planet to ask this question to, um, given your background. I read one time that after Sarbanes-Oxley passed in the Bush administration, a lot of companies started uh, going with the London Stock Exchange, so the New York Stock Exchange. And then after Dodd-Frank, it escalated with people going to either the Japanese stock market or, or the Hong Kong Exchange or, or London or Germany. And what you're seeing are these international companies choosing not necessarily to have their largest presence in American markets. And I'm wondering if if there's a way, one, if, if, if you would agree with that assessment, and two, if so, is is there a way now with this pandemic to try to get Congress maybe to rethink some of the disincentives we've had to international companies headquartering here? Well, I think that's a common discussion, certainly within in business and otherwise, because, you know, what what's important is that businesses feel like they can operate knowing the rules of the road. There's nothing that hurts business more than uncertainty. And uh, when regulatory when regulatory requirements are changing, that creates a lot of the uncertainty you mentioned around Sarbanes-Oxley or Dodd-Frank, and companies look to position themselves. There was something a few years ago known as inversions, where the companies looked at the various tax regimes and said, you know, where do we where do we need to operate? And um, you know, so so companies are always looking at that and saying what's prudent at this time. And so you know, I think it's. It's not so much maybe a government decision, but companies will be looking to get certainty around that. And right now, with regard to China and Hong Kong, it's early to say, but, um, you know, there is a, you know, companies tend to operate in a global marketplace, so they will be making those decisions in real time. Well, hopefully we'll be in a position to capitalize. Senator, thank you very much for taking your time today. Thank you so much, and congratulations again on being clear to that nonsense and, and glad to be able to have you solely focused on the people of Georgia right now. Thank you, Eric. Great to be with y'all. You too. Senator Kelly Leffler, uh, the Department of Justice, saying there was no there there in the allegations against her. Thanks again to Senator Leffler for sitting down and talking to me about all of this stuff. I I continue to say uh, that when she's off script and and just talking about the big news of the day, she comes across as as really sharp and on it. I I think her staff is too protective of her to a degree and, and... starting to to let her stretch her legs which is a good thing uh and and we'll see she she's got time uh, the polling favors doug collins and man i really like him too in fact i saw him on friday as well uh, he's just a super guy uh, and uh, she's gonna have to prove herself before november she's got the money to do it but 
Uh, Collins is going to give her a run for the money. Uh, Meanwhile, John Ossoff has written his Senate campaign a $450,000 check. Where does does John Ossoff get get $450,000 of his own money to, to spend on this? He was an investigative journalist. How does an investigative journalist... Have four hundred fifty thousand dollars to to write now. Uh, Sarah Riggs Amico has written herself a hundred eighty thousand dollar check, and she spent one point one million dollars of her own cash to finance her bid. Now, a lot of Democrats are starting to think that John Ossoff is going to get the nomination outright, uh, and I actually think he's going to be weaker as a candidate than the Democrats think. A lot of Democrats are rallying behind Ossoff to go after David Perdue. Remember, he's going after Perdue. He's not running in the open seat. Meanwhile, in the open seat, uh, a lot of polling continues to show that Raphael Warnock is not doing as good as Matt Lieberman, Lieberman being Joe Lieberman's son, uh, the former vice presidential candidate, senator from Connecticut. It's his son. He uh, worked for a while as a headmaster of a school in Atlanta, now does nonprofit work. He seems to be doing better than Warnock, who himself just came through a divorce. I got to tell you, though, it just it uh, the, the AJC did this, this profile of Warnock over the weekend and some of his statements that he made in relation to racial justice and the like, and that may get you street cred with some of the people in the media, but... I don't know that his overall demeanor, when the deep dive comes out on him, if he's the Democrats' lead, uh, the Democrats really believe in Georgia that they need to find a black progressive just like Stacey Abrams to run for some of these races. The problem is, if we're honest, I, I don't know that it works for them. Stacey Abrams is rather unique, uh, and I don't know that that translates to other candidates. And, of course, there's the issue of people – Getting in the limelight, I, I still wonder if Keisha Lance Bottoms is going to be in for a world of hurt on the Democratic side because she has gotten too much in the limelight, uh, stealing it from Stacey Abrams. It, 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 when you talk to Democrats behind the scenes here in Georgia, there continues to be this frustration that they feel like everyone has to be quiet and wait for Stacey Abrams to speak, that the Democrats of the state uh, can't. You, you've got a Democratic Party, you've got a Democratic chairman, you've got Democratic leaders, you've got former Democratic governors, and all of them must in some way be quiet and allow Abrams to speak. And I think, frankly, uh, the, the Ossoff running for the Senate will reiterate and amplify this because he seems to want to follow Stacey Abrams' lead everywhere he goes, and he's going to let her He's going to be the mouthpiece for her, and I think that Purdue can go after him for that. It's going to be a, a fascinating dynamic to see. Meanwhile, uh, we've got some good news in the state. None of our hospitals anymore, including Phoebe Putney down in Albany, are overwhelmed by the virus. That is really good news. Also, the number of people in hospitals in Georgia with COVID-19 is now below 900 and on the border of 800. It's like 813 people uh, being treated in Georgia hospitals for COVID-19 right now, which is amazing. Remember at the start of May, it was like 1,800 people and we're now down to 800 people at the start of June. So one month later, we've seen that rapid decline. Now we are over 2,000 people dead in the state of Georgia, uh, which is 2,000 too many. But by and large, the virus is continuing to fade in the state. It is still going to be up to people to be responsible and do what they need to do to make sure that the virus 
doesn't spread. I mean, little things like washing your hands or if you're in a big crowd, wear a mask. But it is less and less common to experience the virus in the wild now. And that's really that's really great. And we should all be willing to recognize that uh, the governor is not going to get thanks from anyone. But the data is definitely on his side here. Even the IHME revised model shows that uh, Georgia is doing what it needs to do. In fact, I want to look at the revised model. Remember, we saw a little bit of an uptick in the rolling average. And we're there with the rolling average. Uh, 903 confirmed cases on May 9th, uh, which turns out uh, 946 on April 20th was still the high. That 903, remember at the end of last week, I told you when we'd started last week, it was like 990 and then it went to 980 and then to 970. By Friday evening, it was down to 960. It's now 903. The reason is because of uh, the, the shifts and some of those were backdated tests and they had to be rolled over to the right date. And some of that will still happen, but the rolling average is now on a downward trajectory again. The next high date is May 26. We've got 840 cases on May 26. But again, some of those cases, they will reassign and apply them to the right dates. And as a result, the trajectory continues to go down in the state of Georgia. So, for example, uh, the high day of, of May 18th is 9.03. The very next day, May 19th, that's 756 cases. That's good. And the downward trajectory continues. May 26th, 840 cases. That's the next big high bump. The result of this is that the seven-day moving average for Georgia continues to decline, and that's really good. Businesses are starting to open back up. Uh, Congress is going to fund the payroll protection program one more time, which is good. That reminds me, by the way, uh, if you need the payroll protection program, reach out to my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan. Now, again, as I always say, it doesn't matter if you're listening to me. I, I can see on the live stream we've got somebody listening in California right now. And if you're listening in California, you can do go to FirstLibertyGA.com as well. They help businesses across the country, not just here in Georgia where I am, but uh, most of the listeners of the show are in Georgia, and they are local to Georgia. The Frost family, many of you are active in Republican politics. You know the Frost. Good Christian family. They run First Liberty Building loan. They've been running it since the early 90s, and they can help you get into the payroll protection program if you need access to the payroll protection program. They cannot guarantee it. They do want to help you. The way to get into the program, though, is to go to firstlibertyga.com, uh, click on the apply now button and apply. Uh, you'll need to get your payroll paperwork in order, your quarterly filings, things like that, but apply and They'll help you get in. They can't guarantee it, but they want to help you. FirstLibertyGA.com. Good people. And it looks like Congress is going to extend the funding. Also, the Republicans in the Senate want to begin incentivizing people going back to work. They want to pay bonuses to people who go back to work. So essentially what they want to see is uh, diminish the amount of money that is being paid to people who are staying home and increase potential federal bonuses for people who are going back to work which would be a good thing to incentivize. You know, this is one of the problems employers are having around the country is having people go back to work. People want to stay home. They're getting more money on unemployment. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine last night who was saying he, he is, um, he went and got his haircut 
And at the place that cut his hair, they were complaining that they're making less money now than they were staying home because when they were staying home, uh, they were getting the unemployment. And so he was telling them, uh, here's what you need to do each week. Uh, make no more than I, I think in their particular case is like $801. Make the moment you make $801, walk away because then you'll still get that $600 unemployment bonus from the federal government based on his calculations. I, it just, it's, it's amazing. We're in this position where we have incentivized people to not go back to work at this point. The virus is on decline. We, we, it hasn't seen the rebound that so many people expected. It's going down. The moving average looks good in George. It's time to get people back to work. My office, interestingly enough, uh, for my other job, we're starting to get the memos on how people are going to go into the office and it's going to be a brave new world. People are going to have to wear masks, roaming the office, lots of hand sanitizer, uh, keeping track of everybody you've come into contact with in the office once you've gone there. Most people, I think, aren't going to come back. And I, I've mentioned this before, uh, given the economic struggles we're having as a country, it, one of the things that people pride themselves on is the the so-called Protestant work ethic. Hard work. You're sick, you still go to work. Well, now the government wants you to stay home. How do you convince people in a fragile economy that they're not going to be laid off if they stay home because they're not feeling well? How do you convince people who stay home to work that they're not going to be laid off when they're going to be out of sight, out of mind? I mean, the general presumption from people tends to be that if I am not seen in my office, I'm the guy most likely to be laid off. And so people want to go to work. They want to be seen. They want to be engaged. And now the government's saying no. So how do Fortune 500 companies and other companies, small and mid-sized businesses, assure employees, listen, you can stay home and you'll be okay. You can stay home and we're not going to fire you. You're not going to be at the top of the layoff pick by staying home and working. And I think you're probably going to see a lot of businesses try to figure out ways to make telecommuting happen for most people. It'll be a brave new world uh, that we all go into with, with our offices. We'll explore that more this week, I'm sure. Lots more news to cover tomorrow. Looks like the president may say something later today.